Big Finish presents Doctor Who Short Trips. These Stolen Hours by Grace Knight. Read by India Fisher. I think I must be getting old. It's hard to tell. They only pull me out of stasis when I can be useful, you see. When some particular part of their mission requires a human liaison. Three days out, a quick job, and then back in the icebox quick as you like. But lately, I think I can detect a few little crow's feet appearing around my eyes. And I'm sure I can see a frown line on my forehead. And the other day, when I sat down at a negotiating table, on a planet so far from the Earth they can't even see its sun with a telescope, I caught myself saying, ah, as I got into the chair. The other day. That could have been thousands of years ago for all I know. They've pulled me out this time because they want information. We're orbiting a research station. It's derelict now, but I've been here before, and they want my testimony for their records. The last time, I was here with the doctor. Well, a doctor. Not my doctor, exactly. It's a story for another day, but if you're going to understand what happened, what I was able to do, then you have to know. My doctor was, well, he was a lot of things. Patrician and absent-minded and sweet. And I, well, we were very close. But I lost him. And then I met his younger self. Or rather, I got myself stranded millennia from home and, just my luck, the wrong doctor answered my distress call. And it wasn't the same, not at all. This man, this younger doctor, was all extravagant blonde curls and swagger. But I thought, well, this is, oh, so much better than nothing. So I made up my mind. I kept my secret. Just one more adventure, I thought to myself. I can give it up any time I like. On this particular day, the doctor had landed us on a remote research station. This hadn't been the plan. He knew I'd a passion for airships, so he'd promised me we'd visit Jupiter during the age of airships. A whole civilization balanced in the sky, all powered from the perpetual storm that had raged unabated for millennia. I brought it up with him, of course, the moment I realised from the monitor that we certainly weren't about to see the Jovian skyline. But he just said, hmm, in that way he had that meant, I'm going to get my way here by fair means or foul. Charlie, he continued, why go sightseeing when you can get involved, be part of the action? I had a cutting response half-formed on my tongue when he added, There's a time disturbance here. I've never seen anything like it before. And there it was. He had me. Not the mystery, precisely, but that way he had of trying to look austere when I could see inside he was tap-dancing, desperate to get out and find some answers. I smiled. Fine, I said, but afterwards we're getting involved in cocktails and dancing against a backdrop of a Jovian sunset. I saw his lip twitch as he strode out into the station. 
The moment I stepped out of the TARDIS, any residual longing for airships vanished from my mind. The place was magnificent. A space station, but constructed in the shape of a double helix lying on its side. The designer had obviously liked a good view as much as the next man, though, so while the floors were made of metal, the walls and domed ceilings were entirely transparent. In every direction there was just infinite space. To this day, I have never seen so many stars. And because the walls were transparent, everyone in the station was visible to everyone else. I could see them all off in the distance, tiny little figures appearing to walk upside down on the ceilings as the helix twisted round. I was so distracted that it took me a few minutes to notice there was something a little off with all the people. Oh, they were bustling around like anything, running tests and comparing notes, but there was an uncertainty to their movements, a sort of furtiveness. The doctor strolled into the middle of the busiest lab he could find and started reading data from a large machine in the centre. Well, he said after a while, this all seems fine. He took to wandering around, looming over workstations until eventually he got what he wanted and someone official tried to stop him. In this case, the someone official took the form of an anxious, middle-aged woman armed with a portable computer. Can I help you? The woman managed a small smile as she spoke. The doctor treated her to a kindly expression. I was about to ask you the same question, he said. You're from HQ, the woman asked. If you like, said the doctor. I watched her process that, then decide she was desperate enough to go along with it. We're at our wit's end, she said. I sent, or rather, I'm sure I must have got round to sending, a request for urgent assistance to HQ. She trailed off. And now, said the doctor, his voice the soul of brusque helpfulness, it seems your prayers have been answered. Here we are. All right, she said. What do you make of this? We woke up this morning to find that every single researcher on the base has had two weeks of research done for them overnight. Did you indeed, said the doctor. Show me. The woman led us to her own bench and showed us her results. It's perfect, she said. I honestly couldn't have done it better myself. And look at the note-taking, exactly in the format I like, even down to some pretty unique notations I use to keep track of the cell lines. The doctor and I exchanged a glance. Hmm, I said. You don't think it's possible that you did this research yourself and then forgot about it? The woman looked thunderstruck. Well, I... she began. I suppose it would fit the facts better, but why? How could I forget all this, weeks of my life? She sat down heavily at her desk, staring at her impossible notes. Then her face cleared. She looked up at me. So who do you think can possibly have done all this research for me overnight? But, I said, I was about to launch into my explanation again when a voice from across the room cut me off. It won't work, said the voice. I turned round to see a young man standing by the door. He seemed to be attempting to hide behind his own arms, which were folded in front of him, and he made eye contact only in short, nervous bursts. The doctor strode over. Why not? he said. I don't know, said the man, clearly doing his best not to visibly recoil from the blonde apparition now towering over him. But I... I tried. For weeks, actually, since it started. I try every day, but it's always the same, you know... They say you're right, and then they... they just forget again. You're not affected, 
there was an accusing note in the doctor's tone. I don't know why. I've scanned them and myself, but I can't find anything different. The man was doing his best to keep his tone level, but a hint of panic was creeping in all the same. Well, said the doctor, I think we'd better. Wait! The young man put a hand on the doctor's arm, then jerked it back sharply when he turned round. If... if you really are here to help, then, um... then you'd better meet Professor Vane. I reached out a hand. I'm Charlie, I said, and this is the doctor. Oh, um, right, said the young man, staring at my hand for a moment before working out that he was meant to shake it. Dr. Martin Chesilworth. Mostly I'm just Marty, though. Marty led us through more impossible corridors to a lab that looked like it had been designed by Mary Shelley. Mysterious liquids bubbled in test tubes, acrid smells polluted the air, and all the artificial lights had been cut so the space was lit only by the distant stars. I thoroughly approved. This was my idea of a scientific laboratory. Suddenly, a head emerged from behind a bench. Its hair was bright pink. Its eyes were distorted by enormous horn-rimmed glasses, and it was beaming. Professor Artemis Vane stood up. She was perhaps 70, rather spry, and she was halfway across the room to us before I had time to blink. Marty, she boomed, you're back, and you've brought friends. Hello. Professor, said Marty, they seem to be unaffected. Are they indeed? Fascinating. Professor Vane looked us up and down. You're not on the crew roster, out of towners. A truer word, said the doctor, was never spoken. Now what's going on here? Artemis beamed again, then hustled us over to one of the benches on which a heavy blue substance was glooping away. Short answer, she replied. No idea. I've run every test I can think of, even resorted to manual examination, as you see. It behaves like a virus, follows the life cycle of a virus, but damned if I can find any evidence of a virus in any blood sample. I happened to glance at Marty while she was talking, and was just in time to see an expression of pure hero worship on his face. The doctor had eyes only for Artemis. He practically skipped between the benches, examining everything and firing off questions as he went. Presumably the low-tech approach is to compensate for observer bias. Did you check the genetic code? If a virus got in at a chromosomal level, then what about skin? I watched her as she marched around her lab, adjusting things and sending clipped, efficient answers back to the doctor. I might be a duffer when it comes to test tubes, but I can do people. And it was plain to me that Artemis was showing off, occasionally stealing little glances at Marty, who continued to gaze at her like a besotted puppy. So how long have you known Professor Vane? I asked him. Oh, only a couple of weeks. She's on secondment here, but she's... Marty disappeared back into a world that seemed to consist exclusively of Artemis Vane. Two weeks, I thought to myself. Time to test a theory. She seems awfully fond of you, I said. Boom. He went scarlet the moment the sentence was out of my mouth. Oh, well, he stammered. I'm sure she hasn't even... Well... Charlie, called the doctor. I smirked and wandered over, Marty in tow. It's excellent research, he said, very thorough, but it's all based on one small mistaken assumption. Which is, I said, we're not dealing with a virus, it's a parasite. 
Artemis Vane cocked her head to one side, considering. Have to be operating on a wavelength I can't scan for, she said doubtfully. Oh, it is, replied the doctor, already pulling a keyboard towards him. But now I know what we're looking for, he punched a few keys. There, he said. At first I thought nothing was happening, and then the room, the whole station, started to go dark. I looked at the walls. For one mad moment I thought the stars were going out. Then I saw them. Things, almost crab-like but less substantial, shifting under my gaze as they phased slightly through time. They were sticking to every available surface, and now that the Doctor had forced them onto our temporal plane, blocking out all the light. I stepped outside, being careful not to touch any of the revolting things. A researcher walked down the corridor, and I almost screamed. Her face, her eyes, nose, mouth, had creatures latched onto it, clamped to her skin. I forced myself to walk further, entered the next lab along. More of the same... Every single person had the things attached to every visible orifice. I bolted back to the doctor. He was mid-explanation. Feed on electrical impulses, he said. Specifically the ones associated with the perception of time. That's why none of their victims can form memories. Can they infect us? It was a selfish question, but it burst out of me before I could stop it. The doctor turned to me, understanding. We're quite safe. Our bodies are saturated with chronoton particles, and they won't like that, not at all. But why Artemis and Marty are unaffected remains a mystery. A mystery, said Artemis, that can wait until the damn things are off the station. Right now we need a solution. Is there someone we can call? I asked. Some sort of intergalactic pest control? Pest control? The doctor snorted his response. That's your proposal, is it? Wipe out thousands of innocent, mindless creatures for the crime of eating something you don't approve of? Honestly, the tendency in your species to reach straight for the gun is enough to make me despair. It really is. Well, we can't exactly let them stay here, I said. Obviously, he replied imperiously. So what do you suggest? I have to confess I was getting a little exasperated by this point. We'll ask them to leave. Ask them to leave. A moment ago you were saying they were mindless. Oh, they are, he said. Fortunately, I have enough mind to manage both sides of the conversation. And with that, he leapt into action. Computers were rewired, the power supply was rerouted. At one point he had us turning on all the taps within ten square feet. Artemis seemed to catch on to what he was up to fairly fast, but I was fogged. I didn't mind, though. It felt rather like a fun game to be rushing about with wires and sink plungers. I also had plenty to amuse me in watching the way Marty and Artemis got on. She had a way of phrasing instructions that meant Marty would know exactly what she needed before she was halfway through her sentence. And she made him laugh. He was a sweet man, but despite my best efforts to charm him out of himself, I could never get further than a sort of brittle courtesy. With her... He was a different person. He laughed, he made daring suggestions, the improvement in his posture meant he even got taller. But eventually I got bored with watching them and gave in. The doctor had ordered Marty and I to find him a grandfather clock and bring it to the lab. No explanation as to why he needed it as usual. I'd rather suspected he was just trying to get rid of us, since finding a grandfather clock on a space station seemed such a remote prospect. 
but to my amazement there had turned out to be one in the company director's office. I suppose some people will suffer even the inconvenience of transporting a great hulking thing like that through deep space if it makes them look more impressive in meetings. Anyway, as Marty and I, flush with success, were dragging it down the corridor, I asked him for his best guess as to what exactly the Doctor and Artemis were up to. Oh, he said, well, I I didn't like to disturb them, but I think, if I had to guess, I'd say, you know those particles you're covered with? Chronoton particles, I said. Yes, that sounds right. Well, I think he's going to flood the whole station with them. You know, just a... Just make the, well, make the food taste bad, I finished for him. And then the parasites will just go away? Marty shrugged, then grinned. Or at least put them off eating the residents. And if it is, you know, a rip in time that caused the problem, then if the machine's going to work properly, it'll have to sort of knit the hole shut after the parasites go through. I decided to risk a change of tack. So, Professor Vane, I said, You've really only known her two weeks. That's right, he said. Why? Oh, I don't know. Something in the way you are with each other. It looks like, well, she seems to know you very well. Oh, said Marty. Yes, she's so observant. And and God knows why she'd be interested in a lowly postdoc, but she, she really seems to be willing to have me around. I filed this humongous understatement away for later and got back to the task in hand. And that's how we carried on for most of the afternoon. Artemis and the doctor performed calculations that made my eyes water, while Marty and I acted as the muscle of the operation. And then something happened. The doctor called out for someone to hold a couple of large wires together while he put the final touches to the power supply. It could have been any of us, but Marty was nearest, so it was him. And it was a silly mistake. Could have happened to anyone. The doctor told him to let go on the count of three, and, well, Marty was one of those people who assume it's one, two, three, go, rather than just one, two, three. So when three came, he was still holding on. The shock went straight through his body. For a moment he went rigid, and I'd swear he was lifted slightly off the ground. Then he crumpled. And Artemis screamed. She was at his side before I'd even processed what was happening, just holding him. Rendered utterly useless by grief. The doctor moved her gently aside, kicked the wires out of the way and brought Marty round within a few minutes. By that time, Artemis had turned grey. She just held his hand while silent tears coursed down her cheeks. The doctor looked at her and then at me. I nodded, just enough for him to see. Then he was back on his feet. Well, Marty, welcome back to the land of the living, said the doctor, brusque but kind. How do you feel? I'm sorry, said Marty weakly. I thought you meant go after three. He tried to sit up, but the effort practically knocked him out a second time. Instead, the three of us manoeuvred him onto a bed in the medical bay. I was all set to start looking around for pillows, lighting controls, you know, things to make the poor chap more comfortable. But before I'd got past the threshold, Artemis had everything sorted. She moved with a practised efficiency, plumping pillows, moving pain relief within reach. She even put on some soft classical music. I'd never heard it before, must have been written after my time. But I watched Marty's shoulders relax as it played, and he smiled weakly. Watching her, I had the unmistakable impression 
that here was someone who was very used to attending a sickbed. She clearly wanted to stay by his side, but as soon as she caught sight of the doctor's expression, she gave Marty's hand a final squeeze, then led the way out into the corridor and closed the door behind her. The moment we were out of Marty's earshot, the doctor rounded on Artemis. And now, Professor, you're going to tell me exactly what you're doing here, he said. We were in the corridor, infinity in every direction, but all eyes were on him. Artemis said nothing. It occurred to me later that she wasn't someone to whom lying came naturally. Eventually the words came out, feeble in her mouth. I don't know what you mean, she said. All right, said the doctor. Let's start with what I can tell you. You've travelled through time to get here, and not in a ship either. If those creatures are here in these numbers, you must have punched a hole in the universe to do it. Now let's be absolutely clear. Whatever your plan was, it is over. I will find out, and I will stop it, so you might as well just tell me. Artemis was silent for a moment, staring out at the stars. Eventually she spoke. There isn't a plan. Oh, really? said the doctor. You infest a high-level research station with parasites that completely paralyse them and are near undetectable, and you want me to believe it's all, what, an accident? Artemis looked at him coldly. An unintentional side effect which we have now fixed. Thank you, by the way. Not good enough, said the doctor. Do you think I'm just going to leave you to get on with it? There's no plan, Artemis repeated doggedly. Search through every note I've ever written and you won't find it. Good grief, one simple mistake and you're casting me as the head of an alien invasion force. I will find out, and when I do... Doctor, I said, I think she's telling the truth. They both turned to look at me. I don't know why, I continued, but somehow this is about Marty. The look on Artemis's face told me I'd struck home. Marty? The doctor looked confused, which I must admit gave me a tiny twinge of satisfaction. I may be a dunce at measuring chronoton particles, but I can read a situation. Come on, said Artemis. If I'm going to tell you my life story, I'll at least need a strong cup of tea. Artemis led the way back to her lab, and I noticed as we walked that the parasites were mostly gone. The few that remained dropped off as I watched and scuttled away. I was surprised to find the doctor more than willing to wait while Artemis shuffled around making tea. He even helped himself to a biscuit. But eventually she sat down, and after picking up and putting down her tea a few times, she spoke. Well, she said, I suppose the most salient point, the data you're missing, is that Marty is my husband. Well, not yet. Not yet for him, anyway. He'll meet me when he's 40. We're the same age, actually, to within a couple of months. And it... it will be... it was... perfect. I hadn't been lonely before. I've always made friends easily. But the moment he entered my life, I realised I'd been missing him. All that time. And then, ten years later, he was dead. Congenital condition, nothing anyone could do, even with a time machine. Artemis paused, took a sip of her tea with a shaking hand. 
I don't mind telling you I was already blinking back tears, but the look on the doctor's face was stony. Artemis looked at him, and something hardened into defiance in her expression. It wasn't fair, she continued. I could have lived with one or the other, early death or meeting late, but both. It was like the universe gave him to me, just so it could take him away again. So I fixed it. I built a time machine. It took me 21 years. She broke off, and for a moment the academic in her surfaced as she looked straight at the doctor. You were right, by the way, she said. I don't have a vessel. I found a way to make an incision in the space-time continuum. Tiny. Just enough for one person to step through. I... Honestly, I assumed it would seal itself off afterwards. The doctor folded his arms, but didn't speak, so Artemis continued. He used to talk about his time on this station quite often, because it was the worst time of his life, she said. He was bitterly, miserably lonely. Well, you've met him. He's so shy. He always said if he'd had just one friend, just someone to have lunch with, it would have been enough. So I thought, well... I can only make one trip. I'll make the worst period of his life a happy one. What if he recognises you? I said. Artemis risked a small smile. Not a chance, she said. He won't meet me for another 17 years, and when he does, I'll be 30 years younger with mousy brown hair and a crush on him. She turned back to the doctor, and there was a pleading note to her voice as she said, I know I can't stay. I can't risk a close acquaintance, but just a few weeks, just a break from the loneliness for both of us. And then I'll go away, retire to a beach planet somewhere and watch the sea. Where's the harm? I looked over at the doctor. His knuckles were white. Where's the harm? He said. Where's the harm in stealing from Marty's past? Where's the harm in wandering into his life at the wrong time and causing untold changes? Who's to say those dark years weren't formative? And even if they weren't, what sort of relationship is founded on a lie? You have taken from him the right to agree to this or not because he has no idea who you really are. They were both on their feet by this point, practically squaring up to each other over the biscuits. Doctor! I had to shout to make myself heard. He spun round towards me. I faltered, but I had to try. She lost her husband, the person she loved the most in the whole universe, and she got hardly any time at all with him, and then he was gone. Can't you imagine what that feels like? His eyebrows rose in surprise. Imagine? I know what it feels like. I used to forget in those days just how old he was. He was so much younger than my doctor that he seemed almost a boy. But in that moment, I felt his age. At that point, he had already lived seven times longer than I could hope to. My interjection had softened him. He turned back to Artemis. A bleak future is no excuse to steal from someone else's past, he said. Artemis still looked mutinous. Doctor, I said gently, why don't you go and check the hole is knitting together as it should? 
My doctor would have understood this to mean that here was a situation where I might get on better without him. But this doctor looked affronted. He stalked off all the same. I walked over to Artemis and sat down beside her. You knew it had to end eventually, I said. Artemis sniffed into her teacup. And you got what you wanted, I continued. He's happy. Right now, he's happy. He's completely starstruck by his new mentor, and he's had two glorious weeks. You gave him that. Think of it as a... a... I broke off, but she finished my sentence for me. A parting gift, she said. And that, more or less, was that. All that was left was for Artemis to say goodbye to Marty. She was wonderful. She told him he was a pleasure to work with and a very stimulating lunch companion. All very proper, nothing to stick in the mind, nothing to make herself any more memorable than she already was. It would probably have gone off without a hitch, if not for the fact that, well, Marty wasn't stupid. Just as Artemis was turning to go, he took her hand. He was still weak from the electric shock, but his grip was firm. I'm missing something here, he said, aren't I? Artemis said nothing, so he carried on. You, you knew me. You saw right through me the first time we met. There are maybe four galaxy-class scientists on this station, and you wanted to eat lunch with me every day. Who are you, Artemis Vane? She looked into his eyes, and for a moment I thought she might kiss him. But instead, in a voice so low I could barely make it out, she murmured a response. I'm no one, Marty. Goodbye. Well, the doctor sealed the hole Artemis had made, made sure the last of the parasites were gone, and we took Artemis home. To her own time. But we found that beachy planet she'd been talking about. The last time I saw her, she was striding barefoot along deep blue sand under a violet sky. And then the doctor and I were off to the next adventure. That day was when I had to admit to myself that I knew what he'd think of me, if he knew. That when I finally told him would be the day I had to say goodbye. Really goodbye. There was no way he could approve of what I was doing, or even really understand it. He was always so strong, you see. He suffered so many losses, so many old friends, but it never occurred to him to cheat, to push back against the unfairness of it. And even now, after the untold thousands of years that have passed, I can't regret my decision. I watched him, my doctor, die. And then the universe threw me a miracle, a few short months of reprieve from a lifetime of grief, and those few months I stole, well, if the fractured, lonely life I lead now is bearable to me, then those memories are the reason why. <laughs> <laughs>